If you'll take a copy of God's Word this morning and turn open to the Gospel of John. This morning, John chapter 11, we're going to take just a little break from the book of Hebrews. In light of this week, if you're turning a pew Bible, you can do so to page number 897. We're going to look at John 11, just verses 33 through 35. want to think together about the one thing that gives comfort in a week like this, and that's Jesus. Uh, And what I want us to see, or hope we will see from this passage this morning, is that we will see the heart of Jesus this morning. John chapter 11 is a passage that many of you know, maybe even most of you know very well. It is that great account of Lazarus being raised from the dead. You remember that Lazarus and Mary and Martha were siblings, and Larry, uh, Lazarus and Mary and Martha were friends of the Lord Jesus. They were intimate friends of the Lord Jesus. In fact, when he would go to Bethany, which was just outside of Jerusalem, and even seems to be a base of operations outside of Jerusalem, he would stay with Lazarus and Martha and Mary his dear friends. It is Mary that John tells us at the very beginning of this chapter that it was Mary that anointed the Lord Jesus' feet with ointment. And it is a group of friends of Jesus, intimate friends. Lazarus becomes ill at the beginning of chapter 11, and Jesus is told about Lazarus' illness But curiously, he doesn't rush off to to go to be with Lazarus. And before he arrives, in fact, even before he sets out, Lazarus dies. The two grieving sisters, friends of Jesus, intimate friends of Jesus, will come out of Bethany to meet Jesus as he is heading their way. And they will throw themselves at his feet. Mary does so with incredible grief, and she cries out to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then the two verses that I want us to focus upon this morning as we consider the heart of Christ, verses 33 through 35. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? He said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we are thankful for the gift of your word. And we are in need of it this morning. We want to see the beauty of your Son. We want to see the beauty of our Savior. We pray that as we look at these couple of verses together, we would find that you are ministering to our needy souls. And we pray all this in the strong name of Christ. Amen. I want us to see the heart of Christ this morning. Two things from this passage. Two things. 
his anger, and his sympathy. I want us to see his anger, and I want us to see his sympathy. Both are comforting, and both are very real. First is anger. In our passage there in verse 33, John uses a word that he will use again when he gets to verse 38. If you look at your Bible there, the ESV translations that most of you are using, it is covered by two words as it's translated in English. And your ESV translates it as deeply moved. He was deeply moved in his spirit. Now, when he says spirit, he's not talking about the Holy Spirit. He is talking about the inward being of Jesus. His, his deep within, deep within Jesus, he was deeply moved. The sense, though, is greater than what you and I might have come to our minds when we hear deeply moved. It is a much stronger word that is used here. Both in the New Testament and outside of it, it often has the idea of a, where you do that, you know, that deep sigh within, or that deep groan. But it's not mere groaning. Outside of the New Testament, this word will be used in Greek to speak of a snorting of a, of a horse when it's all in a lather. And here, what he is pointing out to us and is conveying is that inward feeling of outrage, of indignation. This is not simply grief. This is not simply sadness. This is an explosion within Jesus. He, he is exploding inwardly, deeply moved. He is greatly troubled. He's angry. If all this week had to look at death in the face, albeit in different ways, we aren't all experiencing it the same. Some of us are experiencing it more than others are experiencing it. I told this story uh, few times this week as I've sought to equip others, to minister to others this week in light of all of this, I made a horrible error years and years ago. I had a cousin who committed suicide. And at the funeral, I was standing with his brother, another one of my cousins, and as a pastor who has sat and prayed with Numerous people through the years who have had a loved one commit suicide or a family member commit suicide, I thought I would open the door to ministering to my cousin, and so I said something like, I'm, I'm so sorry. I can't imagine the sadness you are feeling, and maybe even you have a twinge of misplaced guilt that you're feeling. I've ministered to a number of people in similar circumstances, and often they have told me that they feel guilty. They wish they had said something, or they had seen something, or done something. And he stopped me. And he said, Jason, I don't feel sad or guilty. I'm angry. And rightfully so. He had a right to be angry. Whether his anger was right or not, he had a right to be angry. Jesus was angry, and he had a right anger. 
The gospel writers are very clear that Jesus at times was filled with anger. In Mark 3, it's a wonderful example. In Mark 3, there's a man with a withered hand that is brought to Jesus. And the Jews are standing there. And it is the Sabbath day. And Mark tells us that they were looking to see whether Jesus would heal this man with the withered hand on the Sabbath day. And so Jesus calls the man with the withered hand to him. And he proposes a question to the Jews that are looking upon the scene. He asks them whether it was lawful for him to do good on the Sabbath. And Mark tells us that the Jews were silent. No one raised their hand. No one said, yes, Jesus, it's absolutely lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Here is a man that is in need and is suffering, and it's right for you to heal him. No one said that. So Mark tells us that Jesus, quote, looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. He was pained inwardly. Because of their callousness. Maybe we would say something like. Jesus was torn up inside. He was angered by the inhumanity. These fellow men were showing their fellow man. He's angry in our text. Why? Why is Jesus angry in this text? Some will say, well, he was angry at the Jews. He's often angry at the Jews and, and about their callousness. But that, they aren't antagonists in this passage. The Jews, in fact, we're going to see as we go through this, they actually are blessed in this passage. They aren't antagonists. Some will say, well, it's not the Jews that he's angry with. Actually, what he's angry with, he's angry with Martha and Mary. Because Martha and Mary are showing some sort of unbelief. He had just told Martha, just before, a few verses before, he had told her, Lazarus will rise again. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And so here they are weeping and mourning. Don't they know that he's going to live? It doesn't seem like that is why he is angry. Look at the text again. John says in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved, angered in his spirit, and greatly troubled. The Jews didn't hear what Martha heard. They didn't know that Lazarus was going to be raised. And yet it's when he looks upon Martha and Mary and the Jews weeping that he is deeply moved and he is angry. He then immediately asks to be led to where Lazarus has been laid, and then he weeps. He sees their pain and is angered. He sees their tears, and he is moved to tears. Why is he angry? He's deeply moved by what? By sin. And its effects in this world. He hates it. 
He is angered seeing his friends, his intimate friends, having to deal with the ravages of sin and death. He is angered by how they are being treated by sin and death, just like he was angered by how the Jews treated the man with the withered hand. Jesus is not cold. He is not indifferent to the pains of his people. He's angry. He hates death. He hates sin. He hates Satan. He hates murder. And his is a righteous anger. Some of you, like my cousin, your overwhelming emotion this week is anger. And it can be right to be angry. There is a righteousness about being angered by sin and its accomplice, death. Godliness is never equated with a lack of emotion in the Scripture. Stoicism is not maturity. Christ is the perfect man. He is the perfect godly man. He had emotions. He had strong emotions. And he wept. And we have to be careful. Because Christ isn't like you and I in one sense. He was never controlled by excess emotion, as you and I often are. He never suffered from wrong or misplaced emotions. He is always righteous and good and in an order with his emotions. And so we are told by the Apostle Paul where he will give us a warning and he will say, Be angry, but do not sin in your anger. Be angry, but do not sin. But don't miss it. For that fact, don't miss it. He was, as the perfect man, a man who was deeply moved, greatly troubled, angry. If you are angry, so was Christ. As J.C. Ryle said, to be cold in the sight of sorrow is no sign of grace. There is nothing unworthy of a child of God in tears. There are times that you and I are to be roused and raised up to anger. You and I should feel deeply about sin and the effects of sin in this world. He did. Leads to our second point. The sympathy of Christ. Verse 35 this is, as all you Awana scholars know from your childhood, the shortest verse in the Bible, right here, John eleven thirty five. Just two words, and yet some of the most comforting revelation of our Savior in all the Scriptures. Just two words, Jesus wept. The word wept here is not the same word that's used to speak of Mary and Martha and the Jews weeping. It's actually a different word. And this word actually has a, a picture to it of tears streaming down a face. Just think on that. The, the Lord of glory, the Son of God, who has known eternal joy and eternal happiness. The picture here is of him having tears streaming down his face. Again, why? 
to remember the scene. He knew earlier in the chapter that he would raise Lazarus from the dead. He said in verse 11, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. He's going to bring Lazarus back from the dead to life. Yet he still weeps. He knows that death does not hold him. Yet he still weeps. He knows that Martha and Mary will see their brother face to face within minutes. And yet he still weeps. Why does he weep? The tears of Mary and Martha moved him to tears. He sympathizes with his people. With his friends. When old theologian said it so well about these tears, he said, they loudly proclaim the profound sympathy of the heart of Jesus with us in all the sorrows and trials through which we pass. Had those sisters for a moment questioned the love of Jesus for them and his sympathy with them in their sorrow, how they would be rebuked by those groans and tears. Jesus wept. What tender sympathy and grace. And he is the same today, yesterday, and forever. He wept. His heart is the same. The heart of Jesus is on full display here. He is angered towards sin and the effect of sins in this world. And he is sympathetic towards his people. That's his heart. Four applications. First, find comfort in his anger. You want an angry God. You want an angry God. And you have an angry God. A week like this just brings it home. We want a God who is angry at sin. We want a God who is angry at death. Who is angry at Satan. And we have it. Jesus is the righteous king. Angered over the stain in his creation. And as the God-man king, he isn't simply angry. He doesn't just sit and stew in that anger like you and I often do. He acts and he acts righteously for his people. He's moved. So many ask after events like this, where is God in this? Doesn't he care? I remind you of our text from last week in Hebrews 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. How much does God care about the pains of this world and death? How angry is he at sin and death enough to send his beloved son? How much does Christ care? How much is he angered by sin and the effects of sin with death? He is willing to suffer and to go under death. That it might be conquered. 
He knows grief deeper than we do. He knows righteous outrage to depths you and I have never experienced. He does not leave his people in misery. He doesn't leave us in the darkness of this world. He doesn't leave us under the power of death. He doesn't leave us. In fact, get a small picture of it here in this passage. Jesus immediately goes to the grave and he raises Lazarus from the dead because death is an enemy. And our enemies are his enemy. And he conquers them all. He's not ignorant. He is not impotent. He is not indifferent. When Christ's anger burns, it produces righteous fruit. He acts to conquer every single one of his and our enemies. Everyone. And it costs him dearly. He's conquered even now. I want you to understand this. He's conquered even now. This is what he is telling Martha and Mary and what he is even demonstrating in the resurrection of Lazarus. I've conquered even now. Sin no longer has a hold on the Christian. You've been set free. Satan no longer sits enthroned over your life. You've been set free. Death cannot hold you. You've been set free. He conquers. But it's also true that he is conquering. It's also true that we haven't seen all of these things brought underneath his feet, as Paul will say there in 1 Corinthians 15, where he completely abolishes and destroys them forever. But make no mistake, neither sin, nor death, nor murderers, nor Satan get the final say. He does. He does. When he returns, there will be no more senseless killings. There will be no more children preceding their parents in death because there will be no more death. There will be no more pain. There will be no more suffering. Second, Be comforted by his sympathy. Be comforted by his sympathy. We should remind ourselves that God in the person of his son is everlastingly man. And so we can be assured that he will be everlastingly sympathetic towards man. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As an old Puritan said, he can and will no more cease to be merciful unto men than himself can now cease to be a man, which can never be. And because he took our nature upon himself, all the mercies which he extends to us are as one who sympathizes with our nature. He knows. He's experienced. How often have you spoken to someone and they say, Do you, you have not experienced what I've experienced. Well, why don't you walk a mile in my shoes and then you can talk to me about what you're talking to me about. 
But that isn't true of Jesus. He knows our experience to greater depths than we do. He's walked the hills of Galilee. He's walked the streets of Jerusalem. He tread up in our shoes up Mount Calvary. He's not like the millionaire today that will spout off about the trials of living in the inner city and all the problems there. Or the pastor that stands up on a Sunday morning and talks about the ravages of war in the Ukraine. He has been affected with our infirmities. He experimentally knows them. He is the Lord who Isaiah says carries our griefs and has borne our sorrows. As A.W. Pink said, he felt the burden of our sickness before he removed it. And if you know him, he's your friend. He's no less your friend than he was friends with Martha and Mary and Lazarus. He is not somehow that he ascended into glory. Dare we ever think that he is less kind, less compassionate, less loving, less sympathetic? How could that possibly be? Apostle Paul is trying to wrap his mind around this and Ephesians 3, as he's, he's thinking about, oh, this, this great love of Christ. Sympathy is just a manifestation of love, a particular kind of love, isn't it? And he's thinking upon the love of Christ. And as he's thinking upon it and he's praying it for, for the church there and he, in Ephesus, he will say, this, this love of Christ, he says, it's something that he, it has no height. It has no depth. It has no breadth. It has no length. He says, in fact, that it is something that is, in a way, inconceivable. It surpasses all thought. Surpasses knowledge. That is, you and I can never reach the depth of His love experimentally or with our minds. Never. In the midst of our grief, in the midst of our sorrow, in the midst of our pains, in the midst of this world, we swim in an ocean of His love. can't reach its height or its depth or its length or its breadth. Third, weep with those who weep. Weep with those who weep. Christ, likeness, has the mark of sympathy. Weep with those who weep. I love the Jews in this text. They are sitting with Mary, and John tells us they were consoling her. And when she goes out to meet Jesus, the The Jews think that she's on her way to go to the tomb. And so John tells us that they continue to go with her to console her and that they are weeping with her. They're weeping with those who weep. And that isn't lost on Jesus. In fact, as they go to comfort her, they are the ones that receive the blessing as a result. They become eyewitnesses to 
arguably great, Jesus' greatest miracle in his earthly life, where they see Lazarus raised from the grave. And I've thought about this over and over this week, the great privilege that there is in weeping with those who weep. I was coming back, uh, headed home Tuesday afternoon after... Monday night and Tuesday morning of ministering, and this phrase just kept going through my head, and it's been going through my head all week, is that this is just a painful privilege. It's just a painful privilege. Look, it is painful to carry the burdens of others. It is painful to weep with those who weep. And it is also a glorious privilege. This is why Solomon said, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Ryle wonderfully said, let us never be ashamed to weep with them that weep and rejoice with them that rejoice. Well would it be for the church and the world if there were more Christians of this stamp and character. The church would be far more beautiful and the world would be far more happy. Amen and amen. Weep with those who weep. Finally, pray for God to work. Wouldn't it just be like God to do a mighty work out of a week like this? That uh, Reformation slogan keeps going through my head this week. post tenebrous lux. After darkness light. May that be true. Would you pray for revival? Our society will not stop its downward spiral if hearts remain unchanged. If you are truly anger, and it is a righteous anger over sin and its effects in this world, the answer is a mighty work of God. This is a fallen world. It is a fallen world. All that's happened this week is you and I have just seen that stark reality all the more clearly. Here's the reality. If it wasn't for God's common grace, every week in this world would be a week like this. This is a fallen world. If we want to see our society change, we need to see lives change. Pray for revival. Politics, governmental programs, laws, advocacy will not ultimately turn the tide. The ultimate tide-turning, life-changing that our society needs is found in Christ. But we don't just want to see revival so that our society is changed. We want to see people saved from eternal death. Death is real. <laughs> Have you ever reckoned with that this week? You got a circuit loose. Death is real. And it's coming for all of us. There were students this week that were jumping out of windows that had 
barricaded their rooms with furniture that had mattresses up against windows. Faculty and staff that were hiding underneath their desks. There were masses of people running from building to building. And many of them staring death in the face apart from a Savior. Pray for revival. We want all to know the promise of Jesus in John 11. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. You should be moved to pray for revival. Friends, this isn't home. You and I just got a loud wake-up call again this week. This isn't home. So many of you have, uh, have sat with you, called you, visited you this week. Probably besides just sadness, people expressing sadness, the main sentiment that I've heard from you is, I can't wait for Jesus to return. I can't either. Because when he returns, all of this disappears. All things are set right. It is everlasting life. No longer pain. No more disease. No more discouragement. No more murders. I want to see all things set right. We're not home. (laughs) But he's coming. And he is coming. And when he comes, all things will be set right. So we keep praying and we pray with the Apostle John, come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's think about this this morning. Just read in closing for you the great picture of when our Lord and our Savior returns. John says in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Glorious day. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. He's coming. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly.